Welcome to episode 642 of the QAV Investing Podcast. My name's Cameron Riley. This is a show where I sit down each week with my friend Tony Kynaston. He's a very successful long-term investor whose returns are about double market over the last 30 years. And on this show, we talk about his investing methodology, QAV, quality at value. This week on the show, we're going to be talking about why Howard Marks is saying this time it might really be different and whether or not Tony agrees. We're going to be doing a portfolio update and breaking down our portfolio by market cap so we can see the differences between large market cap companies and smaller market cap companies and how they've performed over the last year, well, this financial year, actually. And then Tony's going to do a deep dive on Parenti PRN. All that coming up next. Howard Marks in the Financial Review being quoted this morning. Yeah, Chanda Clear. Howard Marks just said the most dangerous words for investors. The Wall Street icon has made one of the biggest calls in his career by predicting those who confuse brains and a bull market might be about to suffer. So John Templeton's famous warning that this time it's different comprises the most dangerous words an investor can utter because they invariably mean rationalizing valuations that look high relative to history. But Howard Marks, the Wall Street icon and founder of Oak Tree Capital, says we often forget that Templeton also said the phrase may actually be true 20% of the time, which is why Marks feels justified giving his latest memo the provocative title, This Time It Really Might Be Different. Of course, at this point, I have to play this. It is different every time. It's always different, Tony. It's never the same. Thank you, Alan Kohler. Uh, here's Howard Marks' central message. The decline in interest rates that started around 1980 appears to be over, and markets and economies are starting the transition to a new regime where economic growth may be slower, profit margins may be lower, default rates may be higher, asset values might not keep climbing, money may not be as easy to borrow, and investor psychology may not be as uniformly positive. The final point is important, Mark says, the vast majority of investors have, quote, with relatively few exceptions, only seen interest rates that were either declining or ultra low or both, end quote, but have also lived in a world where easy money has caused distortions that investors have, in effect, grown accustomed to. It causes things to be built that otherwise wouldn't have been built, investments to be made that otherwise wouldn't have been made, and risks to be borne that otherwise wouldn't have been accepted. Basically, cut a long story short, what he's saying is that the last 30 years of investing has been an anomaly with declining and then low interest rates. And anyone who got good returns over that period think they're geniuses, but really it was just a bull market and low interest rates. And that this time it might really be different. And we could be in a long period now of rising interest rates or at least stable high interest rates and lower asset returns, lower performing shares. What do you think about that, Tony? And oh. it also could just be Howard Marks trying to get people to read his memo. Oh, yeah. I'm not a fan of Howard Marks's memo or, or Howard Marks, really. Despite the fact that, you know, obviously I acknowledge that he's been a successful fund manager and investor over a long period of time, but it wasn't. It was only a couple of months ago he was telling us, I think it was him who was saying he was convinced by his son to buy tech stocks Bitcoin? again. Yeah. So, no, Bitcoin, wasn't Bitcoin it? Bitcoin or something, it was cri yeah. Crypto, yeah, buy crypto. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but to address his points rather than to address him, 
uh, yeah, I mean, there's a bit of truth in what he's saying. We have had a long-term decline in bond rates or bond yields, I should say. Uh, and so there has been tailwinds behind the stock market. However, it hasn't been like a steep, straight decline from top left to bottom right. It's been plenty of interest rate ups and downs along the way. And certainly during my investing time, there has been. Um, yeah, so, but perhaps we have had a, um, a sweet spot for equity investments. Uh, but along the way, there were definitely times when interest rates were high. There's, least as high as they are now and and you know the market did what it did it's doing now it did just and it goes through that horrible cavitation period where there's a some kind of shakeout and difference of opinions and then eventually it corrects itself and keeps going because the market's been around for more than the last 30 years and it's been going up for more than the last 30 years so longer term it's been it's been going up for the last 100 150 years so you know it will continue to do so but it'll be different sectors High interest rates will favour some sectors over others. They they certainly won't favour the rocket to the moon, unprofitable, you know, startup companies that are going to be unicorns supposedly, and therefore you pile in with cheap money. And it will favour more solid quality companies that have been around for a long time and have been through high interest rate cycles before. It'll probably, I, I think, it'll probably favour banks and financial type stocks may hurt commodities but again sometimes the cycles in commodities isn't isn't one to one correlation with interest rates so yeah so there'll be swings and roundabouts as there always is stock market's not going to close it's not going to go broke it'll eventually ride itself in this current environment and get on with it so business as usual you yeah <laughs> yeah i mean there's a lot of people out there trying to grab headlines and <laughs> i'm not one of them it's it's just like yeah like it, it's this time isn't different. If you take a long enough time scale, it's, we've been through this before. We've been through wars in the Middle East. We've been through oil shocks far worse than this. We've been through interest rates much, much higher than this. All those things are, you know, the market's seen before, and yet it still trudges along, going up the hill to a sort of average, sort of nine or ten percent return over a long period of time. What were the interest rates like in Australia in the early 90s? Early 90s. So that was the recession we had to have. And yeah, I mean, the first mortgage I had on a house had a 15.75% mortgage rate against it. So bond yields were probably around about 9 or 10%. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about the, the economic environment when something like that happens is it favours retirees and, and 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 people who just want a safe return. They put their money into banks, get paid a decent yield, or they put their money into annuities and get paid a decent rate of return, and they re- retire happy and safe and pull a caravan around Australia until they fall off the perch and don't don't have to worry about their their income. So, to some extent, that money goes out of the stock market and goes into bond or bond like products like annuities. But there's still a heck of a lot of money left in the stock market. And, you know, again, when that period of adjustment washes through, business gets on with it and the stock market starts to climb again. Looking at the all odds, September 1990, it was around about 1,400. And 10 years later, it was about 3,200. Right. So at least some of that period, we had high 
much, much, much higher interest rates yeah. than we have now. Markets and, seem to handle it okay. Yeah, and that tends to be the case. It's more, I guess, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to produce any factual evidence for this. My feeling is that it's the turning points that the market doesn't like when it goes from easy money to paying a more realistic or average amount for bond yields or borrowings, that it, it's that kind of turning period in the market that the market becomes manic depressive for a while and then settles down and shakes out. You know, all the companies that can't afford to pay. And, and just like it doesn't re- reverse when, you know, if interest rates start to decline again, the market will take off. It'll go through another period of, you know, adjusting to a new environment and different sectors will have their day in the sun. So it's, yeah, I, I mean, obviously with very high interest rates, it's a tough economic situation. People start to go broke. People can't, you know, pay their mortgages if they lose their jobs, all that kind of thing. So there's certainly, I'm not saying it's sunny days all the time, but as you said, the stock market still went up um, over the 10-year period from from that time on. Well, and, you know, to get, I guess to be fair, getting back to Howard's point, interest rates came down a lot over that 10-year period. I've got a chart here that says in 1990, they were around about 18%, 17-18%. Then they dropped early 1992, they were down about 7.5%. And then they went down to about 5 back up, down, up, down, up came down sort of after the GFC um, to around about 3 4%, went mm. up a bit and then came all the way down to 2022. So in that period from, so 2012 to 2022, we saw a decline all the way down to zero. Mm-hmm. But there was a period there definitely from like 2000 up to 2010 where they, they went up by 50% roughly, went from just below five up to Seven and a half. Um, so, and yet that was my sweet spot for returns because it was coming out of the GFC. And again, the market was adjusting. There was a, if I remember, in about 2012, there was some kind of mini crash in commodities and everyone was throwing their hands up. And like that period between 2010 and 2012, there was just tremendous turmoil and ruptures in the market. And I made heaps of money by just following the process. Actually, I was talking about the decade before that, from like 2000 to 2008. Same thing, up though. to the GFC. Same, really? same yeah. thing, though. You know, it yeah. was um, it was the tech crash coming out of 2000. Then it was yeah. the World Trade Center. Then it was the second Gulf War, which yeah. meant oil prices were going through the roof. It's it's very reminiscent of today's market, where you have. People like Dalio and, and Howard Marks coming out and saying, oh, my God, this is, you know, this time it's different. We've never had this before and that before and this all happening at the same time and it's a crazy place and all this kind of stuff and, you know, getting grabbing headlines. But again, it was a really profitable time for me to invest. I seem to recall I started really going in heavy in the market after the World Trade Center collapsed um, and... And about 2003, 2004, the market went into a bull run all the way through until 2007, 2008 with the GFC. Yeah. I'm looking at it here. The All Lords, August, September 2000 was 3,200, as I said earlier. 3,200 by... 2000, end of 2007, it was 6,779. Not much much more than that today, though, isn't it? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. It doubled over that eight-year period when interest rates were yeah, went up by 50%. Yeah. So not a lot of correlation, at least in that. So anyway, there you go. That's enough of that story. Let's move on. Um, and that's what I find with Howard Marks. That's, that's kind of how I've always approached his, his missives. He's not always on the mark. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Enough of that update. Move on. That's probably the best commentary you can have on it. <laughs> All right, market updates. Uh, well, it's a shit show out there. Let's <laughs> just. My but this time it's different. It. <laughs> yeah, gold is a buy though. We we agreed off air, which meant that a couple of good companies became a buy for us this week: WGX and RMS, large cap stocks. So check those out, folks, if you haven't already. I've added a bit to my personal portfolio and the light portfolio. Already held some RMS, but they both went through a, a quick sort of spike yesterday too. Uh, apparently, we're not the only people who pay attention to the gold three-point trend line, I think, because both of those, when right. they hit our radar yesterday, were already spiking. So get in there while you can if you want. Do not take that as financial advice. See your accountant, talk to a financial advisor first, but check them out. Portfolio update. Uh, it's going well, but I did sit down this morning to do my weekly report to follow up on the conversation we had last week about large caps versus small caps in the dummy mm -hmm. portfolio. I don't know if you saw my newsletter I that I yeah. sent out this morning. You saw that? Yeah. Did you see? So you saw the breakdown? So. Yeah. If I look at all of the stocks that we've held this financial year and then divide them up by large caps, and large caps is market cap over a billion and small caps, I'm just saying anything under a billion, it does seem that like our highest performing stock is SMR, which is a large cap, large cap stock. It's up 45% so far this financial year. And I'm only looking at this financial year. But overall, the large caps haven't performed as well as the small caps. That said, we have twice as many mm. small caps as we have large caps. So, you know, I don't know how I don't know how to make sense of that really. I mean, I guess I'm buying small caps because large caps just aren't on the buy list as often as small caps are. Mm. Or, you know, at, at during the market volatility, the small caps became buyers before large caps did possibly because a lot of them don't have the same amount of eyeballs or coverage or analysts, and we pick them up before the rest of the market does. But anyway, for whatever reason, we've bought more small cap stocks than we have large cap stocks we've held this financial year, and they've certainly outperformed as far as our portfolio is concerned. And look, but, that, uh, yeah. that makes sense because, as you said, like if you look at the ASX, which is ranked by market cap, you know, the ASX 300 is 300 stocks, but stocks over a billion dollars, I'm, I'm going to guess and say it's maybe 30, 40 stocks fit that criteria. I'm not sure what the number is, but it's going to be a, there's going to be a lot more small cap stocks that you you can shop, you know, to find things to buy than you, there are large cap stocks. So that's just a factor of using a market cap weighting of the ASX. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's, you know, makes logical sense that a small cap has potentially a lot higher to go if it takes off than a large cap stock does. But mm. but you borrow, but, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis, it doesn't say you should put all your money in small caps because they can also go down quite quickly too. They're just more mm. volatile. 
and large caps tend mm. to be less volatile. And as I said as well, there are, you know, does tend to move in cycles where small caps underperform and large caps outperform and vice versa. So it's, it's, to me, it's never been a thematic thing about whether you buy a small cap or a large cap. It's just uh, buy the next thing on the buy list. And obviously, people like yourself and those of us that are trading in our super portfolios where we have large ADT, yep. large market cap restrictions, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have the choice anyway. You have yeah. to buy large cap stocks. So yeah. <laughs> the playing field is limited. But it does explain why I think it was Stephen who pointed out in an email to me last week that he has a high ADT restriction as well and that his performance over the last couple of years has been in line with yours and my super portfolio. Uh, as opposed to the dummy portfolio, and I think his thesis is probably correct that it's been the small cap stocks that have uh, helped the dummy portfolio outperform our uh, own portfolios and the benchmark. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I think so. I mean, the only other thing I can think of is that you know now QAVs are out there and we're transparent with when we buy and sell and. Um, you know, maybe our members are all buying and selling at the same time, and they're all they the majority of them have an ASX three hundred threshold, uh, and we're stepping on each other's toes in some way. And maybe people listening in who aren't even QAV members are also following what we do. You know, a jamming. Wouldn't that be a good thing though? If we I were thought we're buying, it would push the price up, up well, down. Well, yeah, that's what I thought too. I, was, I mean, I was thinking about this a lot lately as, as one of the. You know, things is that in my thoughts about why have I underperformed for the last two years, or you know, it's been been while I've been doing QAV, uh, and if everyone buys at exactly the same time, and then that buying sort of precious stops, maybe the stock retreats again, and we force the <laughs> sell, and then we all sell on the same day, and then it rebounds again after a little while after that. So it could be something in it, but I haven't been able to figure out exactly what with any sort of factual analysis yet. Well, that's a theory. Yeah. All right, there you have it, people. Don't buy what Tony's buying. Can you be a bit random out there, please, people? (laughs) (laughs) You're messing with his returns. Yeah. I've got a pulled pork. Lovely. Uh, Who are you pulling? Pulling down. Uh, Parenti. Lovely. Get into it. This was a request uh, from last week. I suspect it was a request because... Parenti has just finalized an acquisition of a company called DDH1 that was on our buy list. So perhaps it wasn't implicit, wasn't explicit in the question. Perhaps it's implicit. The person who asked it was wanting to know whether they should stick with Parenti now that DDH has been merged into them, rolled into them. Uh, and I'll go through that. Um, so first thing to notice, to note is that Parenti, so code is PRN is currently a sell on the bread labor. So it's a three-point trend line sell. So um, bear that in mind as I go through all this. I'm not saying, uh, I'm not recommending it to anyone to buy. I'm, I'm doing this as a, because someone asked for it. Uh, so the company, if people don't know, it's a large mining contractor. And following the, its merger uh, on the 6th of October, so just in the last week or so, uh, it's now the largest mining services contractor on the ASX and probably one of the largest ones in the world. The merger with DDH1 was good. Uh, Parenti prior to the merger was basically an underground mine contractor. D 
BDH was a large uh, drilling supplier. So that was, a, a, I guess, a part of the business that Parenti didn't have. So it, it, it's still within the mining services space, but it's, uh, I guess, diversifying away from just doing underground mine work. So I think that's probably a good thing for them. It seems like a reasonably canny sort of merger of, of two companies. The, it was done by what's called a scheme of arrangement, so there was never any sort of uh, fierce takeover battle for this company. Um, scheme of arrangements are often used in the Australian market. In a nutshell, the acquiring company approaches the target board and says, hey, um, we're not prepared to go through a non-market sort of duel for the company. Here's our deal if you like it. You know, put it to a shareholder vote. We'll put it to a vote of our shareholders, and then they take it to a judge to um, give it a tick, and it goes through um, as a merger under corporations law. So that's what's happened in this case. PRN paid fifty million dollars in cash for DDH, but issued two hundred and seventy-nine million um, in shares, and offered those as um, as part of the payment to DDH one shareholders, and they had a a choice that they could, DDH shareholders could take the cash uh, or take the shares or take a component of both up until the $50 million was exhausted. Uh, so it's a, this is a bit of a tricky one because when I get to the numbers, they're based on the pre-merger. So this is DD, this is Parenti prior to DDH I'll talk about. Um, we won't know what the numbers look like until December or till February rolls around really when we get December's numbers which is the post-merger numbers. So just bear that in mind. But a couple of, I guess a couple of points is the, I think the announcement about the the offer was made in about July and the shares of, of PRN have fallen since then. Um, I think they were around about $1.20 or so in July and they're now down to about $1.05 or 6 So that, I mean, that could also be because the market's down um, in that time and there's been plenty of things going on in the world depressing share prices, but it could also be that the people who have done their due diligence and put the pro forma balance sheet and pro forma PNL together for the merged entities worked out, you know, it's, it's not a bad deal, but it's it's probably, um, you know, the sum of the parts might be 10% worth, le- worth less than what they were separately, perhaps. Uh, so sentiment's important in this one, and as I said, that this company's just become a sell. If it did turn up, and it could because the the Parenti numbers were strong. The DDH numbers were strong. Put them together, they should be strong when you combine them, but I haven't done that piece of analysis because it would have taken all day to to go through the numbers and make assumptions, etc. cetera. Uh, but I suspect, even though it's a sell now, it's just a sell. It's only, you know, it's less than 10% below its byline, so it could, you know, in an upturn, see it come back onto the buy list as a merged entity. Um, so just bear that in mind when I'm going through these comments. Comments. So a bit, a bit more about Parenti. Um, Eleven thousand employees, so very large. Operates in thirty mines around the world. Uh, plus, they now have since the merger a hundred drilling sites, and we know that um, miners are always trying to drill for new ore veins to either extend their current projects or to to find new ones. Um, but Parenti's been around for 36 years, so it's been around for a while. Uh, works across Australia, Africa, North America, UK, and Europe. So it's it's a yeah pretty large company in in their their little sphere. Even though the company's 
the parent companies are called Parenti and until recently DDH. Uh, people might know some of the brand names which have been absorbed into these two over the years. So companies like Barminko, uh, Swick, and Ausdrill. I think they were all listed on the ASX at some stage. And I think Swiss and Austri- Swick and Ausdrill, in the time we've been doing QAV, have been on the buy list. Um, so they they might be known to uh, some of the listeners. Uh, the other point I wanted to call out about uh, Parenti is that uh, as soon as they merged, they announced a, a buyback program. And they had been buying back shares in financial year 22, so this may just be a continuance of that. However, it's interesting that they've issued new shares and now they're buying them back. So could be like a, a nice tricky way to reduce the purchase price of DDH if they issued shares, the share prices dropped back 10%, now they're going to buy them back. It's uh, it's yeah, a nice way of getting a bit of a discount on the original sticker price that they offered for the company. Uh, but I think what's also driving it is this company doesn't pay a dividend. And I suspect the reason why it doesn't pay a dividend is because it doesn't have any or many franking credits because a lot of its income is coming from overseas, from Africa and from the US and from Europe. And you only get franking credits for tax paid in Australia. So I suspect that they're seeing buybacks as a different way of distributing excess cash to the benefit of shareholders. But that started up within a week of the deal being done. So I thought that was interesting. The other interesting thing I I found out was that the company sold $150 million of non-core business and assets just prior to announcing its offer for DDH. Uh, And if you recall, they, they offered $50 million plus issuing new shares. So they do seem to be a board that's pretty savvy at capital allocation and capital management. So I think that's probably a tick um, to them. And they're, they're managing their capital well, um, low debt, uh, huge amounts of cash. I think there's about $300 million of cash sitting on the balance sheet as of the 30th of June. They've obviously spent some to acquire this company, but not all of it. So that's a good sign. Um to go through the numbers and some of the other numbers on this company, uh, it's a it's a reasonably large com- company. It has an ADT of just over $2 million per day, so it's very liquid. I'm doing my numbers on a price of $1.04 and, uh, cents per share, which is less than a consensus target, which is good. Um, I've just noticed StockDoctor's gone back to giving us a forecast value for a while that stopped, but the forecast value on StockDoctor is a dollar thirty-seven and a half, so the company's um, well below that price. And the fact that they're buying back their shares suggests that this, the company thinks they're undervalued as well. Uh, stock Stock Doctor Financial Health is strong and steady. Uh, there's no owner founder, so we can't give it a tick for that. Sometimes there is with these companies, but I suspect that they've been, you know, part of the little companies that have been bought up as this company has evolved. But no owner founder on the board. Um, the PE is 8.26, which is not the highest or the lowest, although it's, it's reasonably low at the moment, but we don't score it. Interestingly enough, again, prior to the merger, uh, prop cap is only 1.6 times, which is really, really cheap. And I guess that's a testament to the cash the company's throwing off. So that's um, that's a, something that's in its favour. And I would think with a low prop cap like that, even with the 
acquisition, it's probably still going to be on the buy list once um, December numbers come out. I guess that's your prediction, and I'll wait and see. The share price of a dollar four and a half is greater than IV one, but less than IV two, so it gets a score for that. IV two for this company is a dollar eighty six, largely driven by um, forecast increase in earnings per share. I wasn't able to tell whether the forecast was based on the merger or whether this was kind of a pre-merger forecast. I suspect it takes into account um, the merger because consultants are forecasting that the earnings per share should increase by nearly 50%, which uh, on a growth over PE basis gives us a 5.89 times number, which is way above our hurdle of 1.5, so it scores well for that. Again, on the valuation metrics, and this is pre-merger, the net equity per share for this company is $2.34. Current share price is around $1.05, so it's trading at less than half its book value, which is amazing. Um, We hardly ever see something that deeply discounted to assets. There is a bit of a difference between net equity per share and net tangible assets of about 20%, but even if you use net tangible assets, you're still buying it really cheaply um, compared to what you compared to what the uh, equity and asset value is that's available. I think the difference is probably going to be goodwill because the company has grown by acquiring other companies. And and um, as we know, the difference between you know the book value of an acquired company or the asset value of an acquired company and what they pay for it gets uh, put onto the, um, the balance sheet as goodwill. So I think that's what's happened here. Um, without going into heaps of detail on that, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, but it's only about 20% different, so it's not going to be um, material to the conversation about how cheap this company is given you, you're buying it at um, half its book value and maybe 80% if you use net tangible assets. Uh, in terms of the manually entered data, it doesn't have consistent, consistently increasing equity, but it is close. I think it uh, the the year where it didn't consistently grow its equity was probably pandemic related, but it's certainly back on track to 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 do it now. So that may change in about um, over the next couple of halves and in, in twelve months or so. Uh, all up, the quality score for this company is nine over sixteen, which is only fifty six percent. So that's that's uh, something to watch out for. It's not not um, it's kind of medium. It's not overly high, not overly low, but it's not not it's not great. Uh, and the QAV score overall is 0.35, which is, is very high. Um, we don't have it on our buy list because it is a three-point trend line sell. But if it wasn't, it would come out pretty high up on the buy list and be a high ADT stock up there. So I haven't gone through and done the pro formers um, on the merged entity, but I suspect because this is a large ADT stock, there are analysts out there who are watching it closely. And we'll see, you know, their numbers reflected in the sentiment um, in the share price for this company. I wouldn't be surprised at all if it gets an upturn as as people do crunch numbers, and um, and I guess more information flows through from the company, perhaps at the quarterly reporting time or the AGM, and uh, we see this come back onto the buy list. Um, summary and pros and cons. So pre-acquisition, the numbers were really good. Um, all the metrics were up in terms of sales and profit and cash flow. Uh, so that I think that was all good. Again, I've made a note here to watch for December numbers. So I think that's um, when we get to see the first sort of set of results with merged numbers. Uh, 
I guess the question someone might be asking if they had have owned DDH and didn't take the cash offer is should they what should they do now? You know, stay as a DDH shareholder or sell? I guess if it was me, I'd probably sell now because it has become a three-point trend sell. Uh, and I say that, you know, fully knowing that it could become a buy again because it's not too far below its buy line. But yeah, I, I would sell until we get some clarity on those numbers. Uh, having said that, the even though the share price is a bit lower than it was when the merger went through, the buy price is dropping each month as well. So next, even if the share price didn't move from here, it wouldn't be a stretch of the imagination to see the, the it cross the buy price in the, in the next sort of six months. So one to watch for, for sentiment. Um, pros and cons. Uh, it's um, I, I think that they, the 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 Parenti board showing themselves to be good, good capital allocators. The company has very good, very strong cash flow. DDH did as well. It was on our on our buy list, so I, I can't see that changing too much in the future. Uh, big pro for it is it's it's trading on very low prop cap numbers, uh, and but it does have a a, a low quality score. And um, interestingly enough, the slogan for this company is expect more. And that's kind of how I thought might be a good tagline for this is that I, I would expect more and better quality score results from a company um, which appears to be this cheap and well-managed. Uh, expect more was kind of a comment I used to get sometimes on my report cards at school <laughs> so when I slacked off. So um, uh, that's the positives for the company. The negatives um, – I, I remember doing a deep dive on DDH and that company, which will become a big part of the merge company, um, is really all about drill rig utilization. And I do recall going back uh, in commodity downturns in the past that drilling companies can get stranded holding onto assets which just aren't being utilized and then they become unprofitable. Now, um, I'm not sure. Sh- Sure, if DDH has leased their drill rigs and they can return them in that situation, or whether they own them and they're paid off or whatever, but um, that is a risk with this kind of company. Uh, if there is a global downturn and mining activity comes off, that'll hurt them. Uh, I guess um, it probably belongs in the positive camp, but it could be a risk. Uh, their earnings are boosted by the low Australian dollar because a lot of their earnings come from overseas. And so, when the Australian dollar is low, they get translated back into the local currency with a bit of a bit of a margin boost. That'll go away if the Australian dollar starts to rise. But at the moment, it's a good tailwind for the company. Um, but it's again, it's one to watch. And um, I guess the other issue for them is they don't they are getting a hold of many franking credits. They did say they will review their dividend policy going forward. Um, so the buyback might change into being. Uh, a payment, a dividend payment if they get enough ranking credits, uh, which they might get from DDH, which has a large presence in Australia. So yeah, an interesting company to go through. Thanks for the question, um, requesting it. Uh, let's watch the space and see, first of all, what sentiment does over six months. And then secondly, in February, when we get December numbers, what the merchant entity, look, entity looks like. Yeah, I remember when its results came out, when they had like record results at the end of the last financial year and the share price crashed by mm. 12% or something. And we're all like, what the hell? One of our light members is actually uh, works at PRN. Okay. And uh, I remember he sent me an email at the time saying, quick feedback from the CEO. 
Market didn't like lack of a dividend, given consideration of a dividend was previously stated when leverage was under one. But with refinancing due next year, they wanted to keep some buffer, plus allocation of future funds slash investments to electrification, risk management, and mining technology, which have a number of years payback rather than shorter-term returns to shareholders. Loss of first U.S. tender and big local tender weren't seen as large negatives. And I asked him if he wanted to try and get the CEO to come on the show. He said he'd work on that for us. Okay, well, it'd be interesting to get him on (laughs) or her. Um, but it could also have been, I think the announcement of the merger was um, raised soon after their results. So that could have also played into that mix. Large share issuance coming up. Yeah. Good stuff. And that's the end of the free episode of UAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another. 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc., sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you like the idea of value investing QAV style, but don't feel like you have the time or resources to learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But while he's not, we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episode. And if you have any questions, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right. Have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorized representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129271. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.